This morning, our scripture comes from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. And I'm going to be reading this morning from the uh, English Standard Version. And so you can follow along on the screen uh, as well. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, these are good words, perhaps even very familiar words, and we all have our impression or understanding of doubting Thomas. I pray, Father, this morning that as Pastor Ed comes and opens up this passage and helps us dig a little deeper and understand more of the truths that are contained here, that you would anoint his lips that you would allow him to speak with clarity and with power and in truth. And Father, that as we would hear your word, we would also understand it, but that we would not just be people who merely hear your word, but that we would be doers of it as well. So Holy Spirit, come, speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I am so excited to be able to finally be able to deliver God's word in front of this congregation that has welcomed me so well. And uh, I'm excited to see what the Lord has in store for us today and what he would like you to be challenged in. Um, you know, I know a lot of us, we, we have different lives. We're in different contexts. We do different things. We have... Um, you know, our own struggles, our own doubts. And so before I even begin today's message, let me just say um, that church, I just want to free you before you listen to the word. I don't care if you got in an argument with your spouse. I don't care if you yelled at your children. Children, I don't care if you gave your parents a, a temper tantrum. I don't care if you gossiped. I don't care if you lusted after things that you shouldn't have. I don't care if... Um, you have dark secrets of sins that you just don't want to share. Because by the authority of God's scripture, 
For those of you who believe, if you say and repent and ask for forgiveness, then God will forgive you and he will free you from your sins. It is as simple as that. I don't care because it's not my job to care. Who am I? Because I know I struggle with the same things you all do in my own particular way. And so I want to free you from that in case you have some heavy things going on in your life. Amen. This passage describes what immediately happens on the first Sunday after Easter. And this is the first gathering after the earth-shattering event of when Jesus Christ, this history-changing event of a dead man rising back up to life. And this passage today, perhaps to your great surprise, is not all happy, happy, joy, joy. It's not uppity and chappity. It's not, about a great, it's not about a story of great faith or of great belief. But in fact, it's about doubt. It is about unbelief. The story we are told today is about our struggles, our everyday struggles. And one of the great things about this text is that it tells us as those who have been shaped by Jesus, as those who live in light what Christ has done for us, it tells us three things about doubt about disbelief. One, it tells us the anatomy of doubt. Two, it tells us the place for doubt. And three, it tells us the power of doubt. Point number one, the anatomy of doubt. For those of you guys who may not know the story of Thomas, let me give you a brief biography which will lead up to point number one. To be honest, he's probably got the worst PR in the Bible. He has probably the worst reputation. If many of us were to ask, do you know who Thomas is? More, most likely than not, you'll probably receive, eh, maybe a disciple. But if you were to ask a person, do you know who doubting Thomas is? Ah, things change. Now, most likely than not, people will be, oh yeah, doubting Thomas. So again, he probably has the worst PR. But in fact, a lot of people recognize him as one who is full of doubt, of disbelief. But you know what? Thomas shows up two more times in the book of John before the passage that we read today. He, one, he shows up in the chapter 11, John 11, and then in cha- John chapter 14. In John chapter 11, let me give you what, let me show you what's go- tell you what's going on. Jesus' friend, Lazarus, has died, right? And if you know the story, you know that Jesus is far from Lazarus and his family. In fact, he just came back from that town. And Jesus hears that his friend is sick, that he's almost dying. And Jesus says and tells the disciples, you know what, let's just wait a couple more days. Let's see what happens. A couple days pass, and news gets to Jesus. And Jesus finds out, you know what, Lazarus has died. And it is then when Jesus says, guys, let's rise up and let's go visit Lazarus. The minute he says that, the disciples are in an uproar, uproar. The disciples are like, are you nuts? Wait, hold on. Let's step back. Let's, let's wait a minute here. Because if you remember, we just came back from that town. If you remember, you were preaching about the kingdom of God. And in fact, people, a lot of people thought you were a nutcase. We nearly got stoned. We barely made it out alive. So if we were to go back, there's no guarantee we're going to survive this time. There's no guarantee we're going to come back alive. And it is then, Doubting Thomas rises up and says, Jesus... Where you go, we will follow, even if it means, even if it costs us our lives. 
That's doubting Thomas. Again, he shows up in John 14. And this is when Jesus is preparing for his departure. And he's saying, you know what? Where I am going, you cannot follow. But let me tell you something. Where I am going, I'm preparing many rooms for you and for me so that we can be together again. And once again, we hear or we see doubting Thomas rising up and saying, Jesus, if we don't know where you're going, how can we ever follow you? That's doubting Thomas. So if we are to look at this Thomas, we do not see a man of great doubt, but we see a man of great devotion, a great commitment, and a man of great faith. And it is this very same Thomas that sees Jesus crucified on that cross. And the minute he witnesses that, his life has been torn apart. His life is shattered. His hopes and dreams have been broken. And he walks away from Calvary utterly horrified. Utterly horrified. And what's interesting is that after the crucifixion in this gathering with the passage that we read today, John takes note that all the disciples are there except for doubting Thomas. And it's like he's missing. It's like he fell off the face of the earth. He's nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be found, nowhere to be heard, nowhere to be even to be seen. Where has he gone? And it's for like an entire week he disappears. But in the passage today, he finally shows up. He finally shows up. It's like he's, he says, you know what? I think I have enough emotional strength to be able to face my brothers again that I've been doing life with for the past two, three years. I think I have what it takes to be able to look at them in the eye. And so he shows up in this gathering. But you know what? He hears the very words that he just could not bear to hear. He hears, Thomas, while you are gone, he came back. Jesus came back. He's alive. He's not dead. We've seen him. And with what very little strength Thomas has, he says, until I see him, until I touch him, until I can place my hand on his side, I cannot let myself to believe. Church, these aren't words of doubt as so much they are words of pain. And this is the first thing I think John shows us with the anatomy of doubt. That doubt is so much more than just an intellectual objection. It's so much more than just an intellectual thought or a position. But in fact, doubt is a holistic thing. When we doubt, it's we are doubting because our whole being is affected. Our soul, our gut, and it hurts. Doubt is pain. It's so much more than just an intellectual objection. It's, in fact, it's at the very least that. But more than anything, doubt is holistic. But our text shows us another thing about doubt. If you've, if you've read through the book of John, John has been trying to show most of the time that there are at least two different kinds of doubt. If you look at the previous stories leading up to this one, Jesus has been confronted again and again and again by people, most, most likely by Pharisees and religious leaders. And they have said, you know what, Jesus, if you cannot show us a sign, if you cannot really prove that you are the one, we cannot believe. And when Jesus was confronted with that kind of a challenge, with that kind of of, of, a, of, a, of a challenge, 
time and time again, Jesus has responded in one of two ways. First, he would say, no sign will be given to you. If by looking at me, if by seeing me, if you cannot believe, if I am not enough of a sign, then you will never believe. Or he would say, I am the sign. I am the bread and the life. I am the living water. I am the sign. But here is Thomas in our passage coming to Jesus, or does, he probably has no idea Jesus is there, but he's asking for the very same thing that these religious leaders have asked before. So why in the world a different response? Perhaps it comes down to skepticism versus cynicism. And one author hits upon this question, he answers this question pretty well, and he, he's trying to ask, or answer the question, can skepticism be spiritual? And here is what he has to say. A certain amount of skepticism is good. Cynicism is more like poison. Small amount can make you sick if it doesn't kill you. The difference is, cynics don't have room for doubt. They are already committed to not believe. Skepticism, however, is about closely examining with the hope of believing. Skepticism might start out with doubt, but he or she is there to thoroughly examine in search of what of which is true. The difference is there were those who came with Jesus asking for a sign with their hands already closed, their minds already made up. Then there were those who came to Jesus who wanted to believe, but could not let themselves to believe, but they really wished it was true. They came with their hands open, willing to believe, wanting to believe, but struggling. That's the anatomy of doubt. And that's the first thing John shows us today. The second thing is the place for doubt. What's interesting to me for this narrative passage today is not so much of what the narrative tells, of what the narrative shares. I mean, it's a great story. It's a needed story. It's a challenging story. It's a, it's a powerful story. But what really baffles me is the placement of the story. Because if you read the last couple of verses in our passage today, it's like John is given this final altar call. I've told you miracles after miracles about Jesus in hopes that you would believe. But right before he's about to conclude his book, he's going to place a story about doubt, about disbelief. John, that is not encouraging. That does not compel me. That does not draw me to want to believe in Christ. That's not a miracle to me. That's not a story about great faith. Essentially what John is doing is this. Many scholars have said that the book of John is a story, is a book of miracles after miracles followed by sayings. And what John is saying is, I've told you stories filled with miracles after miracles, but I tell you, Right now, the greatest miracle of all. The greatest miracle, I tell you, the climactic miracle of all the miracles I've told is not when Jesus met with a man because of his faith. The greatest miracle of all is when Jesus met with a man because of his doubt. John is saying, the greatest miracle I've told you in my book is when Jesus met with Thomas, not despite his faith, but because of it. He's saying, if you can see Jesus doing that, then you too, you can come and believe. Now, this means a couple of things for us, church. 
For those of you who profess faith, it means that you don't have to sweep some of your doubts underneath the rug, that you don't have to put up a front, that if doubt confronts you right in, the, right in your face, you do not have to shy away from it. But you could stare doubt right in the eye and say, you know what? Jesus has, doubt, has been on my side. It means that we can look at our doubt. It means that being so devoted, so religious, so holy can actually drive us to our doubts rather than away from it, like it did with the religious leaders, like it did with the Pharisees. Through the story of Thomas, we too can know that we can meet Jesus in the midst of our doubt as well. Second thing, what is amazing about the story is that we can meet Jesus through our doubt in a way that our faith can't. We can, our doubt can lead us to Christ in a way that our faith never could. Now there's a short little essay about two friends. Their names are Nathaniel and Herman. And they've been the best of friends since they were little kids. And they love to go on walks and they love to talk about faith and, 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 and doubt. And Nathaniel was so moved by the conversation of what his friend Herman had shared, he decided to document it in his journal. Nathaniel writes, It's strange how Herman persists in wandering to and fro over these deserts of doubts, as monotonous as the sand hills in which we were sitting. He can neither believe nor be comfortable in his unbelief. And he is too honest and courageous not to try to do one or the other. He's saying he can't quite believe, and yet he is too uncomfortable in his unbelief. But has enough integrity to know he has got to do one. That type of doubt, my friends, there's a place for that in the Christian life. For those who have a hard time believing, it is this kind of doubt that Jesus says, come with it. Come, for I have a place for your doubts. As Christians, for those who have these doubts, one thing I want to encourage you is, is with this. If you are to engage in your doubts, how you do life, how your relationships with people, with neighbors, friends, coworkers, family, spouse, children, changes drastically. In fact, you can just be very vulnerable with them. Please know, know that you don't have to have all the answers to their questions, to their doubts. You too can say, I don't know. I have my doubts as well. Steve Brown, an author, he's a professor over in the, in, the, in the East Coast, and he has a quote. Let me read a quote from him. If you have some humor, you might laugh at this. When Christians get to the point where they read only Christian books, go only to Christian movies, hang out with only Christian, other Christians, eat only Christian cookies, and wear only Christian underwear, it's time for a reality check. That's sick, and it's sickness unto death. Once we are free from the need to defend, protect, and hide, we have the freedom to show up in places where proper Christians don't go for fear of getting dirty. And it is in our showing up that the authenticity of who we are becomes the flavor that attracts others to the ice cream maker. There is no need nor any benefit to let others see that you have it all together in your life and how you live. But you too can say, friend, I have a hard time believing myself. I have as many doubts as you have. In fact, we probably share a lot of the same doubts. But in the midst of these doubts, I am compelled to believe because of the moments he has shown himself to me. Friend, we are in this together.
You see, it transforms how we relate to other people who don't believe. It makes our time together an authentic search that we do together. Lastly, the power of doubt. What I want us to notice here is that Thomas doesn't, Thomas's doubt doesn't destroy his faith. His faith was hanging by a very thin thread, but it didn't destroy it. In fact, what I want us to see is Thomas's doubt doesn't weaken his faith, but it strengthens it. If you know anything about the story of Thomas, at one point in his life, he did a lot of work in the southern tips of India. So if you were to meet people today that, that, that come from that side of the world, most likely, and you talk about faith, most likely within five, ten minutes, Thomas's name will come up because of what he did. If you were to go to India today, you would come across a lot of churches and trace their lineage back to Thomas. Doubting Thomas, a church planner. What? All because of his experience here in our passage that we read today utterly transforms him. His doubt strengthens his faith. Jesus confronts Thomas in his doubt, and one commentator writes, How ashamed Thomas must have been to hear Jesus quote back the very words that he used to question Jesus. How does Thomas respond? In the text, we see that Thomas never really touches him or examines him, like a lot of our pictures today depict. Because you know why? At this point, at this point, Thomas is holding on to the very person of Jesus. And the next words Thomas utters are pivotal for two reasons. It's striking that doubting Thomas utters the greatest Christological statement, meaning the, the statement that really expresses the person and the nature of Christ. There are many times up to this point where people have called Jesus the way, the truth, the life, etc. But this is the very first time someone calls Jesus God. The greatest Christological statement in the book with the highest Christological view are uttered, are placed on the lips of not one of great faith, but of one of great doubt. People have come, people have heard, people have followed. But very, for the very first time, a doubter, we find, is worshiping Jesus. Second, the most striking thing about this confession is not that Thomas calls him God. It's that he says, my God, my Lord. Martin Luther said there's a world of a difference in pronouns. There's a big difference between saying a Lord, a God, the Lord, the God, versus saying my Lord, my God, my Christ. So church, what is going on? What is going on when Thomas encounters Jesus? When Jesus makes, shows himself, what is going on? Well, this is where we begin to see ourselves in Thomas. What was happening for Thomas in this moment is important for us to understand because let us remember we find Thomas in a place of great doubt because he felt Jesus had abandoned him. He walked out on him. Remember that? And for a week, Thomas disappears. Well, a week later... Thomas shows up in the gathering. And what is dawning on Thomas is this. A moment, a moment where he felt most abandoned is in fact when Jesus was loving him with the greatest of strength. 
with the greatest of power and the greatest of faithfulness. In the time when Thomas' life seemed the darkest was also the very same time when Jesus was going through his own crazy, heavenly, cosmic darkness himself. The time when Thomas felt abandoned was also the same time Jesus was going through his own abandonment with his own father. The moment when Thomas felt that he was abandoned by this Jesus, it was the very moment when Jesus was accomplishing Thomas's redemption, Thomas's rescue. All of this is flooding into Thomas. He is seeing these aren't just wounds. He realizes these are wounds for me. Has that happened for you? In the moments God has abandoned you with the greatest of pain, have you come to see that those were the moments Jesus was loving you with the strongest and with the greatest of faithfulness? Has the God people have called the Lord, the Christ, has he become to you my Lord, my God, my Christ? Have you seen the darkness that Jesus bore upon the cross was not just a darkness, but it was your darkness? The thing that heals Thomas's unbelief wasn't for seeing Jesus, wasn't even seeing a sign or a miracle. The thing that heals Thomas was the very personal encounter he had with Christ. Because that's the power of doubt. That's what doubt can do. Has this kind of encounter happened for you? Perhaps there are some of you right now who are, who are doubters, who have, are not yet Christians, who are still back and forth, who are still just stuck. And you hear the, sto- you hear the gospel story and you say, you know what, this is just too good to be true. The stories I read and the sermons I hear, no, this is just too good to be true. To you I say, I know, it does sound too good, too good to be true. But don't you wish it was? Don't you wish it was for you? And if you're a believer and simply can't or struggle to accept that the gospel is this good, it's supposed to make you feel miserable and religious, or it does, then don't you, to you I also say, don't you wish it was true? Let me close with verse 29 and following. This is where we listeners are welcome to participate with the story. John is saying, you can't just sit back and be told a story, but you got to be part of it. Jesus goes from speaking to Thomas, and this is the point where it's about Christ and you. It says, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Church, he invites you. He's calling you to enter in and partake in this wonderful story. Come in as those who doubt so that you may find faith. Because in the midst of great doubt, my friends, faith continues to reside. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you help us to encounter a living person. Father, in the midst of our searching and questioning and doubts and fears, in the midst of that, it's so easy to turn to principles. It's so easy to turn to ourselves and our own strengths. It's so easy to even turn to experiences. But above all else, may we turn to a person that we find in the midst of all this doubt that we would come face to face with the one who died, that we might have life. With the one who endured our darkness so that we might have a smile with God. We pray that you would help us to be a living community that doesn't merely live according to the teachings of Jesus, but also a living community that is shaped by an ongoing encounter with this Jesus so that we may go, might go into this world, into our community, as those who are profoundly changed, not because of our moral ability, but because of the goodness, beauty of the one who has changed us. Thank you, O oh God, that you meet us sometimes not on the basis of our faith, but on the basis of our doubt that helps us to come to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.